Welcome to the Cover 2 Resources podcast series, a podcast series about addiction and addiction education. My name is Amy McNeil. I lost my brother Samuel to a heroin overdose on October 23, 2015. He was 28. As a family, we thought we were prepared to help Sam fight addiction, but we were painfully mistaken. My family founded Cover 2 Resources in memory of Sam. Our mission is to arm others with the knowledge needed to best support a loved one struggling with opioid addiction. The Cover 2 Resources podcast is an ongoing series in which we interview experts in the fight against opioid addiction. It is made possible through donations and sponsorships from concerned individuals or organizations. If you want to help in the fight against opioid addiction, please consider donating or sponsoring the Cover 2 podcast. Go to cover2.org for more information. This podcast is available on iTunes, Google Music, Stitcher, and via RSS feed. Simply search for the full name, Cover 2 Resources, on your platform of choice. Thank you for listening. Hi, this is Greg McNeil, founder of Cover 2 Resources. Drug overdose deaths in 2016 most likely will exceed 59,000, and that's the largest annual jump ever recorded in the United States according to preliminary data compiled by the New York Times. In 2016, Summit County had 312 drug deaths, and that's a 46% increase from 2015, and more than triple the 99 cases that went through the medical examiner's office just two years before it. To put this in perspective, if all counties in the United States had the same number of overdose deaths as we did here in Summit County last year, there would have been over 900,000 overdose deaths. Akron Children's Hospital has joined the ranks of healthcare providers here in Northeast Ohio that are creating innovative new programs to come to grips with Ohio's opioid epidemic. Here today to talk about the epidemic and its impact on our area and what's being done to make a difference is Dr. Sarah Freebert who is the Director of Pediatric Palliative Care at Akron Children's Hospital in Akron, Ohio. So, Doctor, welcome. Thank you. Dr. Freebert, I'll start off by asking you to describe what you've witnessed as the opioid epidemic has descended upon our community. Thanks for that question. Unfortunately, what we've seen is that there's no demographic, no part of our service area, the people that we serve, that has not been affected by this epidemic, unfortunately. I think for a while in the pediatric realm, we've lived a little bit in the bubble and have managed to, to avoid facing this epidemic head on because it is really billed as an adult problem. But at Akron Children's, we've just begun to see that this epidemic and all of the ripple effects that has, it has created have affected every single um, patient population that we care for from the littlest babies that are born prematurely who wind up with neonatal abstinence syndrome and are in our neonatal intensive care unit, all the way up to our own employees who are struggling with issues in themselves and also in their children. In between those two extremes, from the NICU to the adults that work in our system, every age of child is impacted in some way. We have young school-age children who are living in homes where drug abuse of all sorts is, is occurring, um, and these kids are struggling to eat and sleep and go to school and do normal activities while witnessing their parents and other people 
who are um, struggling with this disease. And those kids are seen by our primary care providers. We have a large primary care network across 28 counties in Ohio, so it's not just Summit County where we're seeing this. Those kids are, are not directly using, but they're obviously experiencing the effect. in a big way. Exactly. And those kids, we have a, a large school nurse program, school health program through, our, through Akron Children's Hospital. We have contracts in over 180 schools in Akron and in Summit County. So our school nurses are at the front lines of these kids who are showing up at school. Maybe they haven't eaten. Maybe they don't have clean clothes um, and really don't have safe places to live. If you go up a little bit in age, then we see the demographic of kids who are starting to use themselves. And I know we're going to talk more about that, but kids who are 9, 10, 11, picking up their first substance and then developing the disease as they get older. And we have parents who are using, who are using within the walls of our hospital, whose children are hospitalized, and those, and those parents who cannot control their diseases are actually bringing their drugs into the hospital, using them in their children's hospital rooms. Um, going down, passing out, overdosing in our hospital bathrooms, um, and requiring us even to adjust how we care for adults in our healthcare system while we're trying to actually ensure their children return to a, a space of health. So, when I say that we're we're just affected across the board, um, again, you can't you can't find one area of our of our organization that hasn't seen this epidemic. So, with the kids, with the youngest ones. Are there any programs out there, or programs in place to take those warning signs, take note of them, and then maybe intercept that, that development of that, because we all know where that's going, intercept and intercede on their behalf. And maybe it's Child Protective Services. I don't know what it is, but are there some programs you know of to, to address that? Well, I think that's you know kind of what we're working on putting together at Children's is a multi-pronged effort to intercede as early as possible when we pick up those first warning signs. So certainly for the kids who are in situations where use is going on, it's, it's a combination of social services, of school counselors and school teachers, of people who are responsible adults in that child's life trying to, to get the child out of a dangerous situation. For children who are already in our hospital system, then we have, I think, more direct ways to try to at least um, ensure their safety. But as you know, our social system, our social service system, Children's Services Bureau, which is our local protection agency, is completely overwhelmed. And they saw in 2016 there were 4,000 more kids in in the foster care system in Ohio because of the opioid epidemic than there had been the year before. So we don't have enough people out there to to receive these children and shepherd them safely through. Um, And so it's going to require a community effort to put things in place to make sure that these kids are safe. Some really tough problems to address. When it comes to palliative care, that's your area of expertise. And, you know, that's got to also be, once again, some real, present some big challenges for you, particularly right now with the opioid epidemic. There's such a push to not overprescribe, and many things can be perceived as overprescribing pain meds. So how does that impact your pack, your practice? It's having huge impacts, not just here for me, but nationally for palliative care providers and pain management physicians um, nationwide. I'll certainly agree that we have swung the pendulum too far when it comes to 
prescribing and for trying to control pain and, and that whole campaign on just say no to pain and all of that has, has somewhat contributed to our issue. But we have people out there who have very real pain, who have palliative care diagnoses, who have cancer or other diseases in which they need good pain management. And somehow we have to figure out a way to work on this epidemic and be responsible about prescribing while not denying access to people who are desperate for good symptom control. We know that pain management is a huge issue. People function better, live their lives better, um, and when they don't survive, they die better when their pain is well controlled. And we can't throw the baby out with the bathwater here by making it so difficult to obtain good pain management for people who really need it. So what I'm afraid of and what I've already seen in my palliative care practice, as have my colleagues, is that the restrictions and the constant changes in regulations and the new state bills that are coming down and the new hoops that we have to jump through almost every day are making it very difficult for us to prescribe pain medicines that are needed um, and appropriate for patients with appropriate diagnoses. That, that's really, really tough. And that's actually where we were before this all um, developed into the problem that we have now. I mean, one of the reasons that pain became such a focus and became such a, a joint commission standard and all of that was that people were having difficulty getting access to pain medications. And so in the process of trying to fix this epidemic, we are putting ourselves back 30 years in the treatment of pain. Interesting. Yeah, that was mid-90s with mm-hmm. the big push to aggressively address and, and treat pain. Meanwhile, you had Oxycontin, Oxycodone, the most addicting uh, opioids known to man that came on the market at that same time. So it really was a perfect storm. Exactly. I think the general perception is that heroin use begins after high school. And the opioid epidemic is not a big issue in adolescence. Can you comment on that, doctor? that is truly a perception out there, and it's absolutely a misperception. I think it is one of the reasons why children's hospitals and pediatric healthcare systems in general have been a little slow to adapt to the strategies needed, adapt the strategies needed to, to address the epidemic, because when you read the statistics about people who are dying um, and the overdose deaths, most of those people are 18, 19, and above. But I think if you stop for a minute, you realize that it's not the usual scenario that somebody picks up an 18, on the morning of their 18th birthday, picks up a needle and puts it in their arm. That process starts at some point. So there is a a disease that is developing far earlier than that. Heroin may not be the first drug that children go to. Um, Often, as we know, adolescents are starting with prescribed pain medications, but medications that are not necessarily prescribed for them medications they're finding in their parents' friends' medicine cabinets, for example, or being given at parties. Um, Or they're starting with other substances, actually. Opioids are one of the many things that we're seeing um, in the addicted adolescents and and young teens who are coming into our hospital. So we have to realize that the disease, as it manifests itself, may not start with full-blown heroin addiction, but it builds to that. Um, and I also think that we are just missing some of the iceberg that's below the surface for that, that heroin epidemic that probably is occurring uh, at younger ages. The Youth Behavior Risk Survey that has been done in Akron and surrounding areas over the last few years does reveal that there are adolescents who will admit on that survey to using heroin. It may be that they're snorting it more, so the evidence is not quite as available as when people use needles. 
But I think we are missing the very big ship in front of us if we continue to say this is an adult problem. That's one of the reasons why we've jumped on this need at Akron Children's, because we've realized it's not an adult problem. Sure. Closely tied to that, actually in one of your presentations, you talk about the initiation of non-prescribed pain meds, so first use, Mm -hmm. and its correlation to problems later in life. Can you speak to that? Adolescents and and actually young kids are developing their brain tissue at a faster rate than you and I are, Greg. Unfortunately, I have bad news for you. Our brain growth may still be occurring, but it's occurring a lot less quickly. So kids who start using particularly opioids or non-prescription pain meds at an early age are taking those medications on the baseline of of a very rapidly developing brain. It's a time when there's little impulse control, there's little um, judgment that has been fully developed. And so that those drugs are hitting that developing brain. We know how powerful those drugs are when you take them um, and how quickly that addiction process can get set up. And that happens even faster in adolescents and young people because of their brain development being so robust at that particular point. And so people very rapidly uh, get addicted to something that's very, very powerful Um, and it's hard to walk away from, and it's even harder when you haven't developed life skills, you haven't developed impulse control, you haven't learned how to regulate your environment. Um, What we commonly see is that people who start using at a certain age, almost a simple way to think of it is that they remain that age for the time that they're using the drug. So if you meet a 29-year-old who started using at 11, when you start talking to that person, you realize that he's 11 years old because that's the age at which his brain really was hit by this horrible substance. So that just sets you up for a lifetime of not having coping skills, not knowing how to deal with stress, not knowing how to handle the various emotional stresses or other things that are underlying your use, um, and not being able to, to use good judgment. I'm not saying that this is a disease about making good choices or judgment. It's not. Uh, but the earlier it starts, the more ingrained it gets into your neural tissues, into your developing brain, into the pathways and systems of your body, the harder it is to get that out of your system and to retrain your body without those drugs. So can they um, cause irreparable damage by that early use, say, age 12 or 13? The evidence is just beginning to come in now because, as you mentioned, this problem has really begun to arise Um, now to a point where these kids are now getting older and we have studies that are showing us more and more about brain function and about coping later in life and about some of the issues that occur later in life. So, for instance, we have now studies that show that babies that are exposed in utero who are born with neonatal abstinence syndrome are not doing as well as their age-matched peers when they're school age and older. So as we have more of these kids surviving through this and we have more information, we'll know more about that. But I think that no one would argue that the, the brain that has been exposed to these substances is not the same brain as one that hasn't. I don't know how long, um, you know, I, I wouldn't go so far as to say that using once or twice when you're 12 is going to cause irreparable brain damage. But I do think that we know that it's, there's a dose response curve there for sure. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's certainly um, a, an intensity of use curve there as well. So how does this all of this knowledge that is emerging on this, how has that impacted the way that we're treating and approaching uh, addressing children's pain? Well, it's made it much more difficult for us, as I mentioned earlier, people who have pain and need pain medications, it's made it much more difficult for us to obtain 
those prescriptions for kids. Um, And actually, the legislation and the changes that are occurring uh, are are so restrictive that it's it's actually causing a burden for children and families. So, for example, Pennsylvania passed a law, I hope they've repealed it, I should check, passed a, a state law not too long ago that limited prescribers to three days worth of opioid prescriptions for children. Mm-hmm. Um, in Ohio, it's now going to be five days. Now, there are certain exceptions to that, but a lot of times when you put a lot of those regulations in place, people don't always pay attention to the exceptions, and everything gets very narrowed down. So if you can imagine, let's say that you have cancer and you have severe pain, and you're going to have severe pain for a year. Having to get a new prescription or a new prescription filled every five days problematic is a yeah. huge burden, mm. especially if there's a copay attached to that or there are mm. transportation issues or there are other things that make your life difficult. That makes it untenable. And so we're, we're causing harm and, and suffering to people by being so overly restrictive. And we're certainly seeing that in the pediatric uh, population for the treatment of pain. I think certainly some good things have come out of this as we've recognized that there is learning to be done and um, changes in practice that are responsible. We don't need to give a child who's had one wisdom tooth pulled a prescription for 60 oxycodone tablets. I think people are becoming wiser about that and more responsible about the level of of need. Certainly, we've expanded our thoughts about non-pharmacologic approaches to pain management, especially in children, and non-opioid pharmacologic management strategies for pain. Those things have always been there. Um, It's not that we jump to the pill first. I think there's increased recognition of that. One thing that would certainly help would be that opioids and opioid therapy are sometimes easier to get to as as remedies for pain management than some of the other things that we know work. So for example, in a pain clinic, in an interdisciplinary pain clinic, we would want to prescribe things like massage therapy and um, physical therapy and even things like acupuncture or other strategies to manage pain. Those things are not reimbursed or covered in our healthcare system, but an opioid prescription is. So if you're in a, in a practice and you have 5, 10, 15 minutes to see a patient, it's a lot easier to write a prescription than it is to think through some of those other strategies, which may take more time to educate about and may be more difficult to secure payment for families for. So we have to undo some of the barriers that are making it more difficult for us to prescribe responsibly while we're restricting access. Yeah, that's definitely got to change. The whole healthcare system has to change. And that may be the topic for another show. But I don't think we have time for that today, Greg. Let's visit that for just a second (laughs) here if we could. Your thoughts on that. This week is, of course, a big week. Uh, The Senate is, is working to try and do something. What? We don't know with Obamacare. What are your thoughts on that? They went into the week thinking, okay, we're either going to repeal and within the next two years we'll replace or we're going to try and repeal and replace all in one big. What are your thoughts, doctor? My thoughts are that children are being left out of this conversation. Many, many children that we serve Medicaid is their only or major payer. And with to replace something, to repeal something without a replacement leaves many, many children without coverage. So regardless of your political affiliation, I think you have to look at the fact that there are lives that are not going to be covered children with pre-existing conditions, and I'm just speaking about children, this is true for adults as well, but we at the hospital take care of kids who have pre-existing conditions who are covered by Medicaid um, and who, who really struggle. And they are a minority of 
the dollars that are spent in this country on health care, but they are the ones who are going to be cut off by the changes that are being proposed. So I would beg our legislators, whatever party they are or whatever um, way they're going to go down, to think about the fact that removing coverage for our most vulnerable citizens is not the way that we want to um, conduct ourselves in this country, I don't think. Amen. Let's move along to the programs that you've seen that have been successful in addressing the opioid epidemic. I think the ones that I've seen that have been successful for the populations that I work with are the ones that are family-centered. So addiction is a family disease, and it's going to take the family or a village or a community to help uh, help us get over this horrible disease. So you know, there are, there are models of care out there that involve um, family-level treatment, that involve adolescents particularly, or young, young children and adolescents remaining part of their family, learning coping skills, learning to work with their parents, not be separated from their families, um, and to be able to, to bring healing to the whole family. And there are, encouragingly, a number of really good models that are out there. I think the other thing that's working better maybe in the pediatric population that is that it's about harm reduction. Yes, there's a very big focus on sobriety and on um, you know, abstinence and that kind of thing, which is, is obviously the goal. But harm reduction at least gives us a chance to not have an adolescent slam a door in your face, but to continue the conversation and continue to be able to work with them. So I think when we focus on family-centered care and we focus on harm reduction, um, and we look at models that really try to keep adolescents together with the people that are most important to them. That's where we have the most success. In the adult world, it's a, a lot of times I think people who do really well are people who are able to separate from their entire environments. They're people who go off and relocate in a new area where they're not surrounded by their triggers or their old drug dealers or their friends who are still using Children and adolescents, we can't just separate them from their families. They can't just go off and get a new job in a new state. This is who they were raised with. This is who they, they count on for support, whether or not those people are good role models for them. So I think we have to look at it in, in a family-centric way. So are there specific programs that you'd like to cite that as examples of just great examples of that family-centered approaches? We had the opportunity to visit a uh, pediatric treatment center at Boston Children's Hospital where they've really pioneered adolescent treatment um, and they've got a wonderful model there. It's housed in their developmental and behavioral pediatrics specialty care area at the hospital because they really view addiction as a developmental illness. And so instead of focusing on it as a mental health issue or simply an adolescent issue, they've actually put it into a department in their hospital that focuses on sort of the normal growth and development of a child in a family and a system. And they've done a really, really great job. The program's been up for, I think, 16 years or so at really creating systems of care around those kids um, who come from a fairly wide geography in the Boston area. So we were you know, we were fortunate enough to spend some time with them and, and take back some lessons learned from how they've done things there as we're looking to create our program here at Akron Children's. Well, that's very encouraging. Mm -hmm. So you're going to take elements of that and bring them back here to Northeast Ohio. Absolutely. Very exciting. So we'll look in the future to hear more about that. Sure. Yeah. Um, so how about harm reduction? Is there anything that jumps in? And I realize that that's really not, that's kind of outside of 
the, the field in which you practice day in and day out. But are there any programs that you've been exposed to that really just resonated with you in terms of, wow, that's really, really just very effective? There's a program in Medina um, that's run through Al-Qaeda that I'm, I'm sure you're yeah, familiar uh, with. Sure, yeah, sure. And they have, mm-hmm. they, they have an adolescent program there that is actually modeled on a nationwide model. And I'm, I can't remember the name of the program, but the person who coordinates their adolescent programming there actually went out to um, learn about that program in another state and brought it back here as well. And it focuses on harm reduction and on, again, keeping the adolescent as part of his or her family. And I know they've had some great success there as well, and we're looking to kind of replicate that program in other areas besides just Medina. So we're, we're interested in partnering with them as well to add that piece of things to, to our treatment portfolio. Outstanding. Doctor, what final thoughts can you share with our listeners about how communities maybe can come together to make a difference in the opioid epidemic? I think it's been wonderful. It's funny to say the word wonderful when talking about the opioid epidemic, but I think one of the great things that has come out of this is that we have seen communities rising up, factions of the communities beginning to work together that never did before, um, and a real call to action in the way that we, we do so well in this country when we have a tragedy. What I would like to see, though, is that we don't end up with a lot of different siloed activities where everybody's got a great idea and people are duplicating work and not coordinating because of whatever reason, whether it's geographic boundaries or funding restrictions or competition or whatever. So I think we have to be really careful as there's all this attention and excitement and new program development that we do it in a way that creates, fills gaps and really adds value to whatever already exists. So for example, in creating our new program at Akron Children's, we're going to be spending a lot of time trying to figure out what are the actual gaps that Akron Children's can fill, not can we create another program to add to a list of things that might already be available. One of the things that I, I worry about is that we dilute ourselves by having too many small little Um, interested party kinds of activities going on that take away our power to really unite and come together for this effort that we need. A a concrete example of that is that I I work in the cancer world uh, too. Um, I'm a pediatric hematologist oncologist and what I've seen over, over my career is that many, many families have had children with cancer and with good hearts and good intentions have created a lot of foundations to support research or to remember their child or to create um, opportunities of some sort in a community. And those are all wonderful, and I don't mean for that to be a negative. But I also think that there would be so much more power if we took each of those little foundations and put them together and found a way to honor everyone's intentions and goals and each individual child, but let the power of collection of people, of money, of resources, um, and, then, and then really looked at how do we siphon, how do we distribute those in ways that really have a chance to move the needle, rather than so many little things that do good for a brief time in a brief space. So I really hope that our communities can continue this great positive energy toward working together, can put aside um, personal agendas or egos or whatever, and find ways to create real change that's lasting so that this horrible epidemic comes to an end and that we don't have another epidemic rising up like this in the future. 
I want to thank you for your time today. This has really been a lot of insight and, and just quite informative, and, and you're doing some great work. So congratulations on the, the work that you're doing at Children's also. Thank you. Yeah. We've been joined today by Dr. Sarah Freebert, who is the Director of Pediatric Palliative Care at Akron Children's Hospital in Akron, Ohio, where they're doing some innovative work to pull together programs to address the opioid epidemic. My name is Greg McNeil. I'm the founder of Cover 2 Resources. Thank you for joining us for this Cover 2 PPT podcast. That's people, places, and things making a difference in the opioid epidemic. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of the Cover 2 Resources podcast. This episode is a production of Cover 2 Resources and is made possible by listeners like you. With your support, the Cover 2 team can continue to research and broadcast these resources to others in need. If you'd like to donate or to sponsor a future podcast, please visit cover2.org. As always, thank you for listening. Together, we can make a difference in the opioid epidemic, one life at a time.